I'm used to saying buenos dias. This time last Sunday, it's good to be back with you, it really is. This time last Sunday, myself, Ethan, my son, Cademan, uh, we were in Cuba. We were worshiping in a little community called Albero outside of Havana, uh, worshiping there in a little house church. Uh, it was a sweet time. We got to spend uh, a good, good deal of our time in that church. Uh, I preached that morning. Cabin shared his testimony on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, Ethan and I uh, taught seminars to church leaders and had a good group. And then Tuesday evening, wasn't it, I think, there was a youth service and some evangelism done in that community. It's the newest uh, I was thinking when, when Reverend Ken was talking about the churches that were planted there in India, uh, this, this community in Albero is the oldest church, nearly 25 years old, that was planted out of the, the main church there in Havana. Um, so we got to spend some time with them. In a few weeks, my son Cademan, uh, Jason, has asked him to share a little bit more extensive report uh, from that time in Cuba during the uh, Sunday school hour. So for a few weeks during the uh, adult Sunday school hour, we'll have a combined time. You'll hear reports from Honduras and uh, other works that are going on, and Cabin will share them. Of course, if you're interested, I'd love to talk to you more about what's going on in Cuba. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 43. Acts 9, 20 through 43, and if you don't have a Bible handy, you can grab one from the pew racks, and you will find this passage on page 917, uh, but Acts 9, 20 through 43. Let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your Word remains forever. For your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And your word works. We've heard evidence of that this morning uh, in the testimony of Reverend Ken. We've uh, seen evidence of that. I've seen evidence of your word at work in Havana, Kohamar, Alamar, Albero. Uh, we are thankful that your word is at work here in Tulsa. Lord, that um, when your spirit goes before the word, you unstop ears and open eyes. And you give new hearts, hearts of, with regeneration to receive the word. And so, Lord, do that work for us this morning. That we might receive your word and be confronted with our sin, but leave this place with the good news of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 19 is broken. It's not a good break, but I'm going to begin um, halfway through verse 19. This is God's holy word. For some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them, before, or bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, church multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydia or Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come with us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. May God write his word upon our hearts. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. Just saying his name brings chills, doesn't it? The name Jeffrey Dahmer, it, it conjures images of violence and murder. Dahmer is known as the Milwaukee Monster. He was one of this country's most infamous serial killers. His very name is synonymous with the most heinous acts of brutality, violence, and murder. From 1978 through 1991, uh, Dahmer killed at least 17 young men. I can't even go into detail about his crimes. They're, they're so violent and aberrant. He was captured in 1991. He was convicted of murder, and he was sentenced to um, multiple life terms in prison. Three years later, he was murdered by fellow inmates. You can go back and find YouTube clips on this, but when news of his murder in prison spread, people literally cheered. What sometimes gets lost in the legend of Jeffrey Dahmer is that while he was in prison, he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He became a devoted follower of Jesus. In late 1991, not long after his conviction and imprisonment, he requested a Bible, and he began to read it. And he read it through and 
read it through again. And while he was in prison, he also requested other Christian books, and that request was granted. And then a minister named Roy Ratcliffe, who incidentally is from Oklahoma, graduated from Oklahoma Christian University, began to meet with him and to minister with him and led him to faith in Christ and baptized him. And from that moment on, Ratcliffe went to the prison and met with Dahmer every week until his death, discipling him watching him grow in grace. When people hear about Dahmer's conversion, which by all accounts was the real deal, their responses range from anger to amazement. I mean, if we're honest, there's something about what I've just shared. There's something about imagining Jeffrey Dahmer being transformed from a sinner to a saint that quite frankly angers us. There's, there's something in us that doesn't want to believe that Dahmer was forgiven, that he was redeemed, that he will worship alongside us for eternity in heaven. And if we're really honest, we'd prefer that he burned in hell. I mean, isn't that why hell exists, for, for people like Jeffrey Dahmer? And so, so we hear of a conversion like this, and sometimes we respond with anger. This doesn't seem right. And yet, isn't there something about it that is equally amazing? Because if God can save a man like Jeffrey Dahmer, then surely he can save anyone. And if God can transform a life of a violent murderer to become a meek disciple, which is how those uh, later people wrote of him, a meek disciple in prison, then the gospel can transform anyone. Friends, the gospel is more powerful and more encompassing than we can possibly comprehend. Now, what you perhaps felt as I shared the story, and if you know of Jeffrey Dahmer and his crimes, and then as I've shared with you of his conversion, what you perhaps felt is what the believers in Jerusalem felt when they heard about Saul of Tarsus' conversion. The first half of this passage is meant to amaze us. It's meant to to truly floor us. It's meant to shatter our preconceived notions of gospel redemption and transformation. I think we have this this, uh, Pollyanna-ish view of Paul. Paul, St. Paul, the apostle. The great missionary who wrote 13 of our 27 books in the New Testament. But, but, but we, don't, we don't think of Paul pre-conversion. If God can redeem Saul of Tarsus, then he can redeem anybody. If God can use a man like Saul, who just a short time earlier, I mean just a short time earlier, was going in and out of homes like like a pharisaical version of the German Gestapo. If God can save and use him, then surely God can save each and every one of us in the fullest extent so that we are justified, sanctified, and glorified, so that we experience true change and growth. So the first half of this passage is meant to lay us bare. It's meant to expose us. It's meant to amaze us. It may even anger us. That if God, if God can do what we see him doing in the life of Saul, then he can do it in anyone. Now, the second half of this passage is meant to bring us equal amazement. Because if God can restore and use Peter, 
after his heartbreaking betrayal, after a colossal failure, then God can restore any believer who stumbles in sin. God can draw back any Christian who wanders away, and he can use any believer for his own glory and purposes. Friends, God, we may fail him, but he never fails us. He never fails to restore us, and that is part of his gospel work. And so with all of that in mind, with these, these two images that, that are meant to amaze us, one, how God can, can save anybody, and then now he can go and find and rescue his saints. With that in mind, I have three things I'd like you to consider. Each of them are rooted in the gospel. First, only the gospel can redeem. Only the gospel can redeem. Let's take just a moment and explore the concept of, of redemption. Let's think about it for a moment. Redemption is a, it's a biblical theological concept. It's, it's a soteriological doctrine, but it's a concept that goes beyond the Bible. What I mean is, is redemption is certainly a biblical doctrine, but it was, a, it was a concept used even beyond Scripture. In the ancient world, an invading army would, would go in, they would capture a prisoner, and if that prisoner's people wanted him back, they could pay a ransom or they could redeem him. Ransom and redemption come from the same root word. Redemption means deliverance from evil by paying a price. Let me say that again. Redemption means deliverance from evil by paying a price. Saul was delivered from evil through the price that Jesus paid for him in his death. Jesus suffered the price of punishment and died on the cross to redeem a most evil man, Saul, from the clutches of evil. And listen, friends, God has done the same for you. He's paid the price for your sins. He's, he's done all that is necessary for your redemption. His perfect life, his horrific death, and his victorious resurrection were the necessary price to deliver you from sin, from Satan, and from yourself. But, but this is... This is so important to grasp. The price that he paid for you was no less than the price that he paid for Jeffrey Dahmer or Saul of Tarsus. In other words, Jesus didn't get you at a discount because you've lived a relatively moral life. The price was the same. Jesus delivered you, did all that was necessary for your deliverance in life, death, and resurrection paid the price the same for you as it was for Saul. On our second day in Cuba, Ethan, I think the day we went to the market, second day, on our second day in Cuba, we went to this market, outdoor sort of open air covered market. That market sells all sorts of things, including this shirt. And uh, there's these small four foot by four foot booths you're walking around, and I saw this shirt, and this, I saw many shirts. There were dozens hanging up. They were red and blue, black and tan, short sleeve, long sleeve, linen, cotton, some with, the, with intricate embroidered designs, some that were plain, just all sorts of shirts. 
And so I asked the shopkeeper, ¿Cuánto cuesta? And she said, ¿Vente? I said, no, no vente. ¿Quince? She said, sí. See, I talked her down from 20 to 15. But then, but then something interesting happened. Cademan came along, my son, and he wanted this, this, this tan shirt that had some very nice embroidery details on it. And I said, ¿Quince también? And she said, sí. And she pointed to every shirt and every dress in the booth, and she said, all of them, $15, one price, the same price. One that's plain, one that's embroidered, long sleeve, short sleeve, same price. I tell you that because Jesus' gospel work of redemption, his work of redemption paid the same price for my little daughter as he did for Saul of Tarsus or Jeffrey Dahmer. And that should amaze us because it reveals the depth of our depravity, doesn't it? It reveals the depth of my sin. It reveals the height of his love. It should amaze us, but it often angers us. Now, another takeaway from that that I thought of this morning as I was reading back through the passage and thinking about that illustration is that when it comes to the price that Jesus paid, there's no haggling. There's no haggling. We don't get to bargain with God. Jesus pays the price, and we accept the price that he paid for our redemption, and it's by faith alone. There's no bartering, there's no bartering. Now, here's another aspect of redemption that I think comes directly from the text it's seen in the passage. Redemption is immediate. It's instantaneous. At one moment, think about redemption. It's paying a price to deliver someone from evil. At one moment, we were enslaved to sin, and at the next moment, we were bought, and we were redeemed, and we were set free. Jason, last week, shared with you verse 18. That's where he ended, I believe. And in verse 18, it's speaking of the apostle Paul, speaking of Saul, and it says, immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. The eyes of Paul's heart were opened and his actual eyes regained sight. But notice where we began this morning in verse 20. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus. And as readers and listeners, we're meant to pick up on that repeated word. It's repeated two times in a very short time. To, to pick up on it and to wrestle with this concept of immediacy. Immediately. One moment, Saul of Tarsus was lost. And the next moment, Paul the Apostle was found. One moment, you were in the clutches of evil, and the next moment you were redeemed and set free. Gospel redemption is not a process. It's immediate, and there is, is something about it that catches the attention of others. They ask, is not this the man that made havoc in Jerusalem? It's what many ask about Saul, and it's what some will ask about us when they observe a life that's been redeemed. And only the gospel can do that. Only Christ in his gospel work can redeem, can pay the price for us, for Saul, for anyone. Let me give you a second thought. Only the gospel can transform. 
Now, now this is where I'm convinced that for many Christians, there is a disconnect. I know there was a disconnect, a disconnect in my life for, for several years. I shared a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. There, there's been a disconnect for countless people that I've pastored and counseled. Many, many believers are fully persuaded and believe that it must be Jesus through the gospel who redeems them. But for some reason, they believe the gradual process of transformation is within their power, their grasp. So remember, what does redemption mean? It means deliverance from evil by paying a price. And we all know we can't do that. What does transformation mean? It means a change or metamorphosis in form or appearance. And for some reason, we foolishly believe that we can do that. Transformation is growth. We see it this spring with all of the rain that's falling. We see it in plants and our yards. Transf or we see it in the river. As the river grows, it's transforming. It's transforming the landscape around it. Transformation is growth. Transformation is gradual Transformation is the outside slowly but surely coming to look like the reality on the inside. And this change or transformation within Saul, it was dramatic and it was quick, and I want to say just a word about that. I don't believe that it's wise or right to use Saul's conversion and subsequent transformation as a normative standard for what conversion and transformation will typically look like. I'm, I'm, I'm talking even beyond the bright light on the road to Damascus. If, you, if that's your conversion experience, meet me after. I would love to hear about it. That, that isn't normative, but, but I mean even, even his, his transformation that occurs... You see, because the text tells us that within just a few days, Saul went from a violent persecutor of the church to basically a seminary professor. People are amazed at his knowledge in the synagogue. That is not typical. And, and I believe we set ourselves up for disappointment or false expectations when we use Saul as a normal example of what the salvation process looks like. We talked about the salvation process in Sunday school this morning, at least our class did, that we, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That we've been justified through the work of Christ and the Spirit, we are being sanctified, and we have a certain hope that we will be glorified. And with Paul, so much of that has collapsed, right? And so we shouldn't use Paul as a normal example of what transformation looks like. There are, there are key passages throughout his writings that give us an example of how his life progressed over, over the next few decades. But we certainly shouldn't build it upon a passage like this. What we do see, however, are some similarities and some commonalities that we all share. Notice verse 22. Says, but Saul, he increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews. Saul was growing, he was being spiritually strengthened. And I've chosen to use the word transformation. He was, he was being strengthened, he was growing. And Calvin, John Calvin, writing about this passage, says this. 
he became more intimately acquainted with the gospel of Christ and his pious affections grew stronger. So when, when Luke records, but Saul increased all the more in strength, and we say, well, how does that happen? How do we increase in strength? How do we grow? How are we transformed? Calvin writes, he became more intimately acquainted with the gospel of Christ and his pious affections grew stronger. The more that Paul became acquainted with the gospel, the more his affections for Jesus and his actions for Jesus grew. He was being transformed. I believe Calvin answers the age-old but still very controversial questions. How do we grow as Christians? How is our form and appearance transformed? How are we strengthened? Answer, by being more and more intimately acquainted with the gospel. One of my favorite passages uh, is Colossians 2, 6, and 7. If you wanted to turn there, it's on page 984, but just listen. Apostle Paul again writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Listen to the logic. As you received Christ Jesus as your Lord, so walk in him. Root, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And we should ask the question, well, how did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By grace, through faith. By simple belief and clinging to him. Therefore, how do we walk in him? How are we rooted in him? How are we built up in him? How are we strengthened in him, to use the language from Acts 9? How are we established in our faith? By grace, through faith. By simple belief and clinging to him. And this is where I think the disconnect sometimes happens. Only the gospel can redeem, and only the gospel can transform. There's no other way. There's not two separate plans. Does this mean that we're passive? Does this mean that we're passive, that we just go throughout life sort of, you know, que sera, sera, sitting on our hands? Absolutely not. If Calvin's correct, and if, if this is what's going on in the life of, the, of Saul here, as he's growing in strength and being transformed, how do we become more intimately acquainted with the gospel? By immersing ourselves in Scripture, which is the unfolding message of the gospel. By, by regular prayer, and prayer is, is a gospel dialogue between God and us. By worship and the sacraments, which are the corporate practices of gospel renewal, where every time we gather together, the gospel is heard, and when we come to the table, the gospel is seen. We call these things the, the, the normal means of grace, the ordinary means of grace, spiritual disciplines, and they are necessary activities for gospel growth, but they are not our activities that lead to transformation, but our triune God's activity through them that leads to transformation. If you've been here during Sunday school, then you remember from chapter three of Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's, who's bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If it was the gospel that redeemed you, 
Is it now something other than the gospel that is transforming you? No. So only the gospel can redeem, can, can save a man like the Apostle Paul, and only the gospel can transform and strengthen him and equip him and bring maturity and growth and grace through him. We're reminded, of course, in verse 31, what true gospel transformation produces. Produces ongoing peace. Produces continued growth. When Jesus, through the gospel, transforms us, does his transforming work within us, that's an ongoing thing, it leads to greater peace with him, it leads to greater peace with others, and it leads to greater growth as the gospel extends outward. Here's a final thought. Only the gospel can restore. So in the second half of this passage, the focus shifts from the Spirit's work in and through the Apostle Paul to the Spirit's work in and through the Apostle Peter. Peter healed a paralyzed man named Aeneas. He raised to life a dead woman named Tabitha. Word of his miracles and message spread throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. As I was reading this passage this, passage this week, two things came to mind. When I read about Tabitha, you know who I thought of? Carolyn DeLong, a longtime member of this church who made blankets and who made shawls and who uh, gave our kids an advent calendar. And did you see the, the passage here which says that after she had passed, uh, they were gathered there and they were weeping and they were, they were showing the tunics and garments that she had made. And he said, set those aside, I've got work to do. So I was struck by that, that God puts us in the presence of certain women like Tabitha, certain women like Carolyn DeLong, certain women who've gone before us who have a, trem a tremendous impact on our lives, that a legacy they leave. But what I really found interesting was, was not the miracles that Peter performed, not the message that he proclaimed, but the very fact that it's Peter, that it's Peter. You know, I was, I've, I've been trying to do this little exercise for the last few months as we've been working our way through Acts to piece together a pretty tight timeline of the book of Acts, and it's actually very hard to do, right? So we can, we can put a point on, on, on a timeline and say, okay, this, this was the crucifixion, three days later the resurrection, 40 days later the ascension. But then it gets real murky going beyond that. So I, I, I'm not sure how much time has passed since the crucifixion and ascension. But in the grand scheme of things, just a short time has passed since Peter is denied as Lord. Not long. It's difficult to know how much time has passed, but what's not difficult to know is that Peter is the one who said in the upper room, Lord, they may all deny you, not I. And then he did. And yet he was restored, both in his relationship to Jesus and his ministry for Jesus. And with Paul, I believe in this passage, we're meant to be amazed, amazed that a former murderer, a man that, that we, we understood his past life, that he could receive the grace of God and be transformed. With Peter... We're meant to be comforted that one who follows God can go astray and still be restored.
That that one who is a child of God and a follower and disciple of Jesus can can deny him with their life and he he still pursues and draws them back. Because this is where we, we live as believers. This is where we experience the ups and downs of following Jesus. This this is what happens when we battle indwelling sin and doubt and even denial. And the words of the old hymn are so true. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Peter failed the Lord. But the Lord did not fail him. The Lord restored him because our God is a restoring God and it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, which includes restoration. Each and every one of us will have a Peter experience. See, using Paul and Peter, we see now one who who has gone from darkness to light, from a kingdom of death to a kingdom of life, and it's amazing because we know what kind of character Saul was. With Peter, Jesus said, follow me, and Peter followed him. He was one of his most vocal disciples. He he wanted Jesus so much that he did stupid stuff constantly. (laughs) He loved Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Doesn't mean you won't have a Peter experience. Each and every one of us will deny the Lord, if not with our words, then with our actions. Each and every one of us will journey into a far off land, and we must believe that the gospel is God's means of restoration. If we didn't contribute anything to our redemption, and we didn't contribute anything to our transformation, then why will we believe that we contribute anything to our restoration? The gospel is God's means of salvation, past, present, and future. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is at work because Jesus has already worked. You are never so good that you are beyond the need for God's grace. And yet you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of his grace. There's a young woman named Alice And Alice gave her life to the Lord when she was a young teenager, 12 or 13. And and she followed the Lord faithfully for the next 10 years. Really faithfully for the rest of her life, but for a short season around 22, 23, just after she had finished college. Alice grew cold to the Spirit's leading. She began to sense some distance between her and the Lord she loved. And she was in her first job out of college. And she began a relationship with a coworker. One evening, she lost her virginity to him. And in that fleeting moment of fornication, she conceived a child. One night stand, and she got pregnant. So for many reasons, she decided to abort the child. And she did. She followed through with it. Not long after... The Lord did what he always does for his children. He pursued her with a never-ending, unfailing, too great to resist love. And she returned to him and she wept more than she had ever wept in her life. And she went to her pastor and she confessed that she she had committed murder. She said, I've killed the child within me. And she begged her pastor for answers. 
What can I do to right my wrong? What can I do to be restored? And her pastor said, sister, it's already been done. When Jesus spoke the gospel words, it is finished, he, he meant it. You must do what you first did. Repent and believe the gospel. Because the gospel is not only the answer for your justification, it's the solution to your need for restoration. You see, friends, whether it's a serial killer named Jeffrey Dahmer who pleads the merit of Christ for his redemption, or whether it's a young Christian woman named Alice who pleads the merits of Christ for her restoration, or whether it's you, or whether it's me, the answer is always only the gospel. The gospel is what redeems us. Christ working through the gospel is the one by his spirit who transforms us. And when we wander astray, it is Christ working through the gospel that restores us. Let's thank him for that. Heavenly Father, thank you that when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the spirit of adoption, and with that same spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. We are your children. We can't we can't unbecome your children. But like children, we make stupid decisions. We willfully sin. Sometimes we even sense relational estrangement, although you'll never leave us or forsake us. And I pray that we would remember and recall that in the same way we receive Christ Jesus, we walk in him. We are rooted and built up and established in the faith in him. There's no other plan. It's the gospel. Jesus' work for us. It's Jesus' work that saved Saul of Tarsus. Jesus' work that restored Peter the apostle. It's Jesus' work for now for us that we plead. We plead the merits of Christ for us. So Lord, I pray for these folks, no matter where they are on that spiritual spectrum. If there are those this morning who are not believers, they are on the other side of the cross where Saul was at the beginning of chapter 9. That if not through a bright light, through the Spirit's certain tugging, that you would draw them to saving faith in Jesus. That you would, that you would apply to them the redemption that Christ accomplished. They'd be saved. And I pray for the many Many like me who are Christians, the certainty of our, our salvation is certain, and yet like Peter, we wander, we stray, we deny, we doubt. And we see through his life that you restored him, that he was useful to you. Lord, make us useful to you. Do that work within us. In Jesus' name, amen.